Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have Professor David Wolf. David is an emeritus professor of history at Black Hill State University. He has written and taught about the American West for his entire career and has articles and books out about Seth Bullock, uh, the Black Hills, in his recent book, The Savior of Deadwood, was the subject of the second episode of History 605, so I invite you to dial back and listen to that episode if you've missed that. Today we're going to talk about David's article entitled, From Disaster to Prosperity, Four Fires That Changed Deadwood. It was published in the winter of issue of South Dakota History, and in it David discusses the impact of the threat of fire, and then four particular fires, and how it remade Deadwood. It's an interesting look at a very famous Black Hills town. Uh, welcome again to History 605, David. Well, thank you, Ben. How'd you get the idea to do this subject, to kind of focus on those four fires? What was the genesis of that? I've always been interested in how natural forces have changed communities. You know, uh, how do communities survive? How do they develop? And what are the flowers of natural forces? Fires? Floods is another issue that I've thought about, is particularly when it relates to mountain towns like Deadwood. And so I, when we start looking at Deadwood and any mountain town that's a subject to fire, the fires have, have had very distinctive effects on their future. Uh, so it's, it's been an idea I've kicked around in my head for quite a while. And then, and then when I got into looking at the mining activity in Deadwood, how they tried to open a gold mill and realized when it burned, which is one of the fires I discussed, the Reduction Works fire, that that really changed the dynamics, the political dynamics in Deadwood to where they ended up benefiting significantly from that fire, which looked like initially a dramatic disaster. It all is kind of spread out from there that, yes, fire is this factor that molded the town. And and, and fires could have done lots of worse things for Deadwood. You know, I, I just, in my article, and I'm monologuing here, Ben, and I apologize, but I just hint at the 1959 forest fire that surrounded Deadwood and the 2002 forest fire, the Grizzly Gulch fire that kind of swept along the edge. You know, you think about those, if they had dropped into Deadwood and were not stopped, how that really could dramatically change the town again. Mm -hmm. So it's really a, an interesting phenomenon how fire can affect communities and, and, and the, the things that can come out of good and bad. Right. Well, and that's the striking thing about the article. You see these out of calamity uh, rises a new thing. In fact, they, they call one repair or uh, renovation the, the Phoenix block. 
How, how does yeah. the Phoenix block come to, which evokes kind of the Greek fable about rising from the ashes? How, how does the Phoenix block come to, come to pass? Well, of course, uh, it, the, the, where the where the Phoenix block is, or today the Midnight Star Building, it was at the core of downtown, and that property was owned by Daniel McLaughlin, and he was a mover shaker, an attorney in Deadwood, and at, right after the fire, he contracted. Uh, to build a new building, and he built a brick building. Uh, the fire was in September, the 1879 fire, where that space was burned over, and he built his building during the winter. He built a three-story building. It, it was one of the first buildings to go up. It went up very prominently, a three-story structure on Main Street. It was rising from the ashes, so they called it the Phoenix Block. It was, I think, more back then known as the McLaughlin Building, but people called it the Phoenix Block. So, you know, and it survived until today, although because it was built in the winter, it kind of settled out of plum and over the years it lost its top floor. And when Kevin Costner bought it, bought the building, when gaming came to Deadwood, he completely revamped it. So it's a new building essentially with just bits and pieces of the original building in it. But it looks very similar to what it looked like when McLaughlin built it in 18, after the 1879 fire. So the frontage is very similar? It is now. The doors aren't quite set right. Uh, the windows aren't done exactly right. But, you know, that's modern construction. They they right. don't really right. do as much ornamentation and worry about the ornate look as they did historically. Right. Well, let's let's set the scene a little bit. What You mentioned this fire that was in 1879, and you deal with three others. What kind of firefighting capacity did Deadwood have? I mean, that's the gist of the article is, is Deadwood's internal debate about, hey, this is a real threat. This could wipe us out. Not only um, people die tragically and suddenly, but we have uh, our, our livelihoods would be gone. We ought to organize a fire brigade or some type of community thing. And then, and how does that occur? And under what legal structure and so forth? Are they, they're not even incorporated yet as a, as a city. Um, yeah. I thought that was kind of interesting. So walk well, us through I mean, the, kind of the setting. Anybody that comes to a gold town that comes from another gold town, particularly, uh, is aware that fire is always a nemesis. As I wrote in the article, uh, Helena, Montana, I think, had a half a dozen fires, and a number of Black Hills gold rushers had come from Montana from the Helena experience. They knew that fire was always a threat. So there's always these little efforts to organize volunteer fire brigades, which, of course, are back in the day are kind of primitive. They they get buckets, they get hooks, they get ladders, hooks to pull down burning buildings and bucket brigades to get water on it. Uh, and, and of course, when you have a volunteer fire brigade in a town that's built on gold and built on transient population and large aspect, some of which goes home in the winter, even if you're a more stable community member, you don't want to spend your winter in Deadwood. Uh, so the interest in supporting the fire brigade would rise and fall. You'd have a fire brigade for a month or two, then it would disappear. You know, they talk yeah. about fire wardens. They hired a fire warden now and then to inspect stovepipes because stovepipes improperly stalled, installed, or that would get clogged were always a major threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they try to have a fire warden tell people to fix it. Well, that without legal authority, that always caused some heartache and, and didn't yeah. happen. One of the things that they always encourage people to do is put buckets of water on their roofs. Uh, many of the roofs, uh, then if you look at an overview picture, you see many of the roofs have buckets, barrels, I should say, of water on their roofs. And and so when a fire would start, you could go to your roof and bail water out. Or if the fire hit the roof, the barrel could 
burn and the water would be released. Uh -huh. So it's kind of a, a very odd way of preventing fire, but it's about the only thing they had. I just a very crude fire suppression system. Yeah. But it worked in one instance. I said, I think the uh, Merchants Bank building fell uh, caught on fire in the stovepipe and the owner went up to the roof and took water out of the, uh, one of the barrels and put the fire out. So it worked in one yeah. instance at least. <laughs> but part of the story, yes, is that uh, they, they really struggled in Deadwood to have an organized fire brigade up to the 1879 fire and even afterwards to finance it, to support it, to keep the interest up. And part of the push then was we need to incorporate as a city to get a city taxed fire department, a city supported fire department. So that's, in fact, I try to make that case, one of the positive changes that with the incorporation became a stable fire department right. and that has grown into the fire department Dead was proud of today. And of course, but after the 79 fire, people were more concerned and it's, and it's I was always a little confused uh, in my little superficial understanding of Deadwood in the early days, why Deadwood fire brigades, and there was like three or four volunteer companies for a time. A couple of them were called the homestead companies. Well, why were they having homestead companies in Deadwood when the homestead was in Leed? Well, it turns out that Sam McMaster, the superintendent of Leed, sent money down to support these fire brigades as a neighborly act, I suppose. Okay. And so they eventually all merged into the Deadwood Fire Department. Okay. So it was very difficult. Even Seth Bullock took a hand at trying to organize a, a volunteer fire brigade before Deadwood had an organized fire department. But again, you know, he had a business, he had a family, gets distracted by other things, and it just doesn't yeah. last. Very, very difficult in a town like Deadwood. Well, yeah, you say the transient population, when it goes from, say, in July, you might have, what, 2,000 people in 1879? living well probably even a little more yeah but yeah but she couldn't it's always hard to tell because people kept coming and going but right and then January streets were always filled just a shadow of that number from july so yeah yeah it was winter was a you know we don't we don't internalize that today but winter was very calm in these many gold towns because people went home the ground froze if you're a placer miner Mm -hmm. You're not going to dig hard in the ground. There were ways to try to do it, but mm -hmm. you, you wanted to save your good effort for the summer. Well, and of course, 1879, they've just now established as a, a territorial legal framework. They're outside of the reservation. What was the right. the Great Sioux Reservation is now taken away from the Great Sioux uh, Indian tribe, and uh, they have some kind of legal status. So that I thought it was hilarious, though, that they... They refused to incorporate themselves. They went to a vote. The vote failed oh, by a wide margin. And the territorial legislature had to get involved and tell them that they yeah. were a city. Uh, I wonder yeah. if you can describe some of those politics. You had two ways, if I understand it correctly, you had two ways of being incorporated as a city. One, you could internally vote and, and ask for incorporate yourself. And, and the Deadwood leaders, I guess you would say, voted or decided they wanted to put to a vote to incorporate. They thought it was important. We want a fire brigade. We want a police department because up to this point, they'd really been relying on the county and the county sheriff. And although the county uh, was headquartered in Deadwood, they still, that wasn't the control they wanted. They wanted to be able to have their own police department and they wanted their own fire department, as I mentioned. Uh, and so they put it to a vote and it's, it is surprising how many people voted against it. Uh, it was like, I think I've forgotten the numbers, but like 799 people voted and only 100 or some voted in favor of it. <laughs> now, there was a large contingent that became afraid of extra expenses. You know, this is going to cost us money. Sure. And that's still true in government, isn't it? We, we People worry about 
how much money is the government spending? They saw new positions being created, positions that the mayor would appoint his crony buddies to, you know, this type of thing. But then there was an, as you see in the paper, the Black Hills Daily Times blames what they call the bummer element and uh, the people down in the badlands, the prostitutes and the and the, the card sharks for, well, you know, the people that support the bro- uh, brothels, the men that support the brothel, all voting against it, worried that the city government would take away the, the sporting part of town. <laughs> right, and right. so they came out in mass. So to avoid that vote and avoid the getting turned down again. People like Gideon Moody, as we know, was one of our first senators to South Dakota, was a federal mm-hmm. judge, mm-hmm. quite a mover shaker. Uh, he, he was and he had come from Yankton and he had been involved in Yankton becoming incorporated. And he said, you know, we need this for Deadwood. And he really became a, uh, adamant about it. And him and a few other political leaders in Deadwood, they had connections in the legislature. They went to the legislature and said, you can incorporate us without the vote. And the legislature did. So it was imposed, yeah. which again caused local outrage. But, you know, people got over it. Yeah. But as, yeah. as, as one, one correspondent wrote in the paper, look, this may cost us a little bit more in taxes, but look what it costs to rebuild this town after the fire. Right. What we pay a little bit more in taxes for a police department and a, and a fire department is far less than we would pay to rebuild after a fire. So let's, let's get our priorities straight. So out of the... 18, well, what are the four fires then that the article goes through? You, well, the 1879 fire is the big one. I spent a lot of time on that because, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, the 1879 fire was the great reawakening of, or I guess, awakening of people in Deadwood. That Deadwood is in trouble. After that fire, people left in mass. Uh, wow. The, the path plaster gold was playing out. Economic vitality was, they had just dropped off the chart. And the people that stayed needed to do something. So part of the article is about how do you economically revitalize Deadwood? And it brought people like Seth Bullock, mm-hmm. James Miller, Saul Starr, Daniel McLaughlin together to do something about Deadwood. And they organized a board of trade. They tried to get railroads. They tried to get an ore processing plant in town. They built a flour mill, for God's sakes, which I'm not sure how a flour mill in Deadwood really worked when the, all the grains are grown out in the plains. But that's another story. So they tried to do things to reinvigorate the town semi-successfully, but they're always on the watch and they would eventually help get railroads to town. They would eventually be successful, but it took a decade. And yeah. part of the story is how Miller was involved in developing the town. So the 1879 fire is this great turning point from economic development, getting a city government, getting a fire department. Uh, we get some new buildings, some, some uh, brick buildings. A lot of people write that Deadwood rose from the fire after 1879, uh, this modern brick town we have today, which is not true at all. Oh, uh, partially true. I should not. I shouldn't say at all, but partially uh, true, because a lot of wooden buildings went up. That's what they had. They built right. in wood, and so sure, 30, 40 brick buildings went up, but still there was a number of buildings that went up in wood. And like over on Sherman Street, that area was known as the the frame district because those are virtually all wood. So Deadwood still had a good portion of wooden buildings. So part of the article is a little bit addressing how Deadwood's architecture was changed. And we can see it today because of the fires, like Upper Main Street, where you have like the Phoenix block. But you look across the street and just next door, there's wooden buildings and they're still there. And those are the the remnants or the the carryovers from those built in the 1880s after the fire. And then the next fire that comes along is the, the fire that burned down the Deadwood Reduction Works on May, March 1st, 1889. That was an effort 
to reinvigorate Deadwood, to build a reduction works, to get gold ore processed in Deadwood by Harris Franklin, by Seth Bullock, James Miller, those people. And they had invested heavily in this gold reduction plant. They thought it would reinvigorate the town, and it burned. It was a disaster at the time. But as I mentioned earlier on, what comes out of it is Harris Franklin takes his group of investors, which had organized around a mining company called the Golden Reward, and they decided, we're going to rebuild, we're going to build a new plant, and we're going to do a different process. James K.P. Miller said, you guys are wrong. Yeah, we agreed with you earlier on the reduction works, but we're not going to play your game. We don't believe the process you've chosen will work. So they build their own plant, a smelter. So instead of having one plant, which may or may not have worked, the fire destroyed it. It caused the schism to come apart. These two competing elements built two separate reduction plants, both of which would work and will okay. be working for the next 15 years, really bringing new life to Deadwood. So, wow, you think about the huh. fire. If it hadn't been for the disaster, would have that happened? You yeah. know, now some of this all might have happened without the fire. The fire certainly expedited it, uh, made people think about it, mm -hmm. uh, and I think changed dramatically. So that's the second fire, the Reduction Works fire, which brought really a new age to Deadwood because once those new plants were operating, railroads came in, yeah. it really brought a boom to Deadwood in the modern Deadwood. And, and I write in the article that once the railroads got to Deadwood in 1890, 1891, they could bring in the building stone. Uh, exactly. that we see over on Sherman Street, the, the, the sandstone buildings that are so prominent in parts of Deadwood came in, much of that sandstone from Hot Springs uh, quarries came in on the railroad, and those buildings went up after that fire because the railroads could bring the stuff in. Okay. Uh, the next fire, as you, as you ask, is the 1894 fire of Lower Deadwood, confined to the Badlands. It took out, uh, you know, just a above where Wall Street is, burned off the front of the Bullock building and some buildings on the Bullock building side of the street. And then the other side of the street, it burned off all the lower block. Now, as I write in the article, the, the effects of that fire weren't quite as immediate as far as helping Deadwood. Slowly, you know, 1894, the fire it comes during the panic of 1893. Money isn't readily available to rebuild, but several brick buildings do come in. What stands out about that is that at that time, Deadwood had a city government. They're tired of fires. Yeah. So what they do is they implement strong building ordinances for fireproofs, how these buildings will be built. They will be brick. They will have thick walls. They will take fire suppression uh, seriously. Mm -hmm. And so you get these series of nice looking 20th, early 20th century buildings, uh, most of the part late 19th, early 20th century that people look at it in Deadwood today and say, wow, that's 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 the Deadwood that came from the gold business. Not really. It came after the gold business <laughs> and it came after the 1894 fire, you know, uh -huh. but it stands as kind of because it includes the Fairmont Hotel. It includes the Bullock Hotel's front, you know, the that came after the 94 fire, Seth Bullock built his hotel. So these classic pieces of architecture, which we all admire in Deadwood. Yeah. All became that part of town came because of the 1894 fire. Okay. And then the last fire was the 1987 syndicate block fire, which I, I think you wanted to talk about a little bit later. Mining is certainly a dangerous process. I mean, you, you talk about the reduction works. Can you describe a little bit what is the purpose of you, you take the gold dust out of the creek or you get it out of the mine? It's not ready for the market yet. I mean, most of it. Gold dust out of the creek is yes, generally. Okay. You, okay. You, you can pan gold out of the creek. Now, there might be dirt in it, but you got to 
you can if you're a good gold panner, you can get that out. Uh, sometimes gold out of the creek will have some impurities with it, and we'll, but it, overall you can still spend it. It's gold dust, gold nuggets. Yeah. You can spend it. What re, buildings that are called reduction works or chlorination plants or smelters do is take the gold out of the rock. As as we should all know, the gold that's in a creek, the plaster gold, the alluvial gold. Did, did not just appear in that creek by the grace of God. It came from someplace. Right. And it came most often from a gold vein because uh, gold comes up through the process when the earth was formed, generally with quartz veins. And in the case of the homestake, there's a great vein of the homestake vein, and there was gold pieces, gold flecks, gold dispersed through in that without that gold vein. And that gold vein eroded over the years, and as it eroded, it put the gold in the creek. Well, now the key is to get the gold out of the gold vein. Now, the Homestakes gold vein, that was called free milling gold. And you could crush that rock, amalgamate that with mercury. Because if you get the crushed rock, float over mercury, mercury makes an amalgam with gold, will gather the gold up. Then you just retort the mercury gold amalgam. Mercury disappears. You've got a button of gold. And so that's called free milling gold. A lot of gold in the Black Hills is called refractory gold. The gold is chemically bound to the rock. Well, how do you break a chemical bond? You either chemically break it by some chemical process, or you burn the hell out of it in a smelter. Mm -hmm. And that's so those two basic processes. So there's a lot of different chemical processes. The reduction works was supposed to be some secret chemical process, never worked. The Deadwood people were suckered into a, what they call process mania. They bought into a unproven process because they got caught up by a slick-talking professor, by God. But anyway, uh, and then when Franklin rebuilt, Harris Franklin rebuilt, they used the chlorination process. Chlorine dissolves gold out of rock and a lot of other stuff. Okay. And chlorine is bad. It's yep. it's basically mustard gas. It can yeah. kill you. Uh, but it did work for a time. I mean, it did use it effectively for a time. Mm -hmm. The smelter went up and it virtually, like I said, it just heated the hell out of the rock melted the gold out. You got slag, you got mat. The gold came out of the mat, then you melted the mat and the gold was in there. Later cyanide came in the early 20th mm -hmm. century. We still use cyanide to dissolve gold out of rock. And so those are the processes they used and Deadwood would have all of those processes in lower Deadwood at one time or the other. Okay. So yeah, it's a dangerous, it's an industrial process. Deadwood had a strong industrial bent in the early 20th century because of all the gold mills they built in Lower Deadwood. Got all it. prone to fire, too. <laughs> yes. Well, that was that's the point. I wanted you to walk through that because you because the listener can then see, man, there's any number of ways that this can explode or this can burn up and yeah. just be a disaster yeah, the, right quick. The smelter did burn down once. Uh, yeah. They rebuilt it rapidly. and But you have hot slag, you have hot fires, you have hot mat, anything can burn. What was the response from the territory and then later the state about all these dangers and the process and so forth or were generally homestake and other gold mines certainly it's a political thing with the uh, uh, the the potential of the environment and and so forth but my impression is that generally state politics and territorial politics supported the process oh yes or the revenue now, now the you eventually got a mine inspector yeah. Mine inspectors were more worried, uh, you know, to how much gold was produced per mine, but they did list uh, casualties. Uh, they were, you know, and and this kind of came the early 20th century in the progressive era thinking, how dangerous is this? And if we publicize danger, 
maybe we'll be more aware of it and we will be more safe. So, mm. but as a whole, as a whole, this very state was very hands off. Territory is very hands off, and they're much more worried about economic development and uh, environmentally. Of course, there was very little concern. And you in the, the, the Deadwood landscape was a mess. Everything went in Whitewood Creek from human waste to mine waste mm-hmm. to every kind of waste you can imagine. It was just a, uh, a stinking mess. In fact, as you probably know. It wasn't until the EPA, or I guess in the 70s, I've forgotten the dates exactly, forced the homestake to clean up what they dumped in Whitewood Creek, because the creek still ran black from homestake tailings. And of course, it runs through Deadwood, and then part of the, you know, they covered it in Deadwood, uh, part because it was just disgusting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, the homestake pulled their waste out, uh, finally, when they built the Grizzly Gulch Dam and containment pond. And lo and behold, what did they find in that creek, Ben? The human waste from the people that lived in Leed and Deadwood. They were <laughs> dumping human waste straight in the creek. <laughs> so they had to go to the homestake and say, and it became just a, a stinking, foul mess. Yeah. They had to go to the homestake and say, can you let, you know, go to the EPA and say, can you let the homestake dump their stuff back in the creek to hide that while we're putting in sewer lines and built the waste treatment plant, which they did. So yeah. it's a good thing in the end, but. But yeah. prior to that, there was just pollution was common. And it's funny, there's a story with a smelter operated to around 1903 in Lower Deadwood. And there was you had to see these pictures of the smelter operating. And there's houses not too far from it. And they have gardens out there. And, you know, coming out of those smokestacks are arsenic and probably some mercury and some mm-hmm. uh, God knows what, you know. And I you look at those people growing vegetable gardens, you go... I wonder what kind of heavy metals they were eating. Yeah. Well, and then as soon as the smelter closed, and at that time it was owned by Harris Franklin's company, the Golden Reward, boy, all these lawsuits come against it that you were polluting the hell out of us. You were killing us. Oh, man. <laughs> so, and, but they didn't do it while I was operating for some reason. It was after the fact. Yeah, when the jobs went away, then it changes. That's yeah, and there's a, another kind of humor story that about the smelter, the smelter smoke would generally go down gulch, you know, prevailing breeze in Deadwood is down gulch, away from Deadwood, thank goodness for the people. Uh-huh. But every now and then it went up gulch. And so the smoke would engulf the town. They asked, the people asked the guy running the, the smelter, a guy named Franklin Carpenter, very gifted a mineralogist, I might add, was this bad for us? And it's, no, it's actually healthy. Look, no self-respecting microbe can live in this. So you guys are healthier now because of that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway <laughs> well it all bears to mind that i mean with all the historic preservation that's gone on in the last 40 years in bedwood uh, or er- earlier in some ways that to live in the town and say 1910 it was not a pleasant experience it, i mean it doesn't look like it does now well it depends what you define as pleasant it was different than we were used to today yeah. you accept the environment you live in and with the wind went sure. down gulch it was it was probably nice uh you wanted to make sure you got your water from a source that was not polluted, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you had to accept the fact you lived in a, an industrial town. A lot of people have lived in industrial towns in their days, sure. and, and mining towns were industrial towns, and and people and then Deadwood had nice sections of town, many nice sections. So, well, it's true, and certainly industrial revolution towns or industrial towns uh, that would just be the way it is. I think a lot of that's people right. That. That's yeah. that's that's business. Well, let's talk about the. The 1987 fire, which you get into at the end, and it, it changes Deadwood in different ways. 
and I had not uh, recalled that there. So that there's an effort to bring in gambling that's kind of independent of the fire, but then the fire accelerates the potential for that. Right. Um, yeah. There's always a, you know the the people at Deadwood who were promoting uh, the U Bet Committee who was promoting getting gaming in Deadwood went to the state legislature to get put on the ballot and the legislature was not agreeable. So they went and got petitions around the state and as people signed the petitions and allowed Deadwood to vote on, allowed the state to vote on whether gaming should come to Deadwood. Of course, would have it won? We don't know. It was a toss up. Uh, people in Deadwood were working hard to convince people to vote. Then the syndicate block fire burned or the syndicate block burned in the syndicate block fire. And lucky for Deadwood, that Mary Dunn and David Larson, who ran the Sears distributorship, which was in the Adams Warehouse building okay. over on Sherman Street, they took a Sears camera, video camera, and went to the top floor and videoed the fire from their window at the top floor of the Adams building. And they caught the dramatic, they, they videotaped for two or three hours. They caught the wall on Lee Street collapsing in the street. Very poignant videos. And so then they, they were on the U bet committee. So they looked at the video, the U bet committee and said, this is going to help us. And in essence, they ran an ad statewide. You could vote no against gambling and let Deadwood burn and die, or you can vote yes and save Deadwood. Okay. And there's no way to measure what effect it had, but a person like David Larson, who was quite intimately involved with it all, emphatically said the ad worked. It's, it's what did it. Yeah. You know, it, it, it swung the vote and it may have. And so it was that syndicate block fire and the syndicate block had been built in 1888, a major block in downtown Deadwood to bring new life to Deadwood's business district. And it did its job mm -hmm. helping reinvigorate Deadwood's business in 1888 and the years after. And then in 1987, 100 years later, when Deadwood's business was faltering, it burned. And because of it, it may have swung the vote, yes, I think it did. I'm convinced it did, to bring gaming, which reinvigorated Deadwood again and allowed all this preservation money to, to rebuild Deadwood and bring new visitors to Deadwood. So that building did its job twice. <laughs> <laughs> this is an excellent way to look at it. Well, 1987, I was in college. I remember the ad, seeing the ad of the burning building. and But I, in my mind, this is my faulty memory, I did not realize that the effort to get gaming in Deadwood preceded the fire. I thought it was a yeah. response to the fire. It, well, that's when it came very publicly aware of with the ads, right. but it had actually started before. You know, as I mentioned in the article, Tom Blair had heard the idea presented at an economic developments uh, conference and brought it back and got a committee going. Right. But they, they had to struggle. So the fire really was the kickstart. Well, David, it's all all very interesting. And I, I'm wondering just a little bit about sources and so forth. You've you written the book previously on Bullock and on Miller, two key players in these three of these fires, three of these four fires. Well, and Miller's probably a player in the fourth fire even, right? Well, yes, inadvertently, isn't he? Yes, yeah, he did. Yeah, because of the reconstruction of the syndicate block and so forth being him. Um, and uh, so it could do its job twice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Said. What are your sources for, for the article? Well, you know, I, I do enjoy uh, using newspapers and right. thank goodness for newspapers.com and, and the city of Deadwood, in essence, made sure all the Northern Hills papers are on uh, newspapers.com. They really help a lot. Yeah. Uh, Seth Bullock, our friend, 
himself wrote a memoir, which is always very helpful. And okay. early understanding early Deadwood and his involvement yeah. uh, is always very helpful. Various other primary sources, such as Annie Talent's book and Brown and Willard's book, are always helpful. But really, without the use of newspapers for something like this, because when it comes to fire, <laughs> mm-hmm. boy, newspapers love to write stories in detail <laughs> and, yeah. and, uh, and go about it. And, and also, I, I have to admit, newspapers.com includes the uh, Sioux Falls Argus Leader, always has interesting insights in what's happening. Uh, the Yankton paper is also on there. They have right. interesting right. insights. And so it's, it's, and you bring, you draw these sources together and you pull out what you believe to be the one that makes most sense for what you're saying, for what is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, I shouldn't say what you're saying, which we know is the truth, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you, you, you just hope it all makes sense and adds. And as long as it adds up as best it can with the other primary sources. Now, when you get to the more modern stuff, uh, Deadwood did pay. Suzanne Juline and others to do oral interviews of people involved in the UBET committee. Okay. And those are all on fire in the Deadwood Preservation Office. And I use those and they were very beneficial. Plus they have a nice file on the fire department and historic fires, clippings and remembrances. And, and so I look through those. And so the city archives has some nice material as well. Yeah. The article includes in the cover photograph of the firemen in their uniforms looking all spit and polished and yeah, uh, about that. presentable and so forth, and kind of turned out for the photograph. And there's uh, rather compelling photographs of the result of the fire too. The destroyed blocks and uh, all the charred remains of these buildings. It's it's quite astonishing to see that. And and uh, your work on there, of course, I should I regret to have mentioned uh, not mentioned it first that this article won the Shell Award uh, for the year. Yeah, congratulations! I was very pleased. I was very honored. Very nice honor. So I, I thank the Shell Committee and the State Historical Society. Uh, I have to thank Cody Ewert for, for uh, Ewert, I think he pronounces his name, yes. uh, for working on the article. And uh, and he was great help. The editor has now left the state press, but he was a, a good guy to work with. Yeah, we miss him and uh, good work on many things. This was one of them. Well, David, thanks a lot for joining History 605. It's been a great conversation and and uh, it's always good to hear these names. Moody, uh, Bullock, Miller, some of these folks who made such a big impression on territorial and state uh, politics and certainly the community. They did. Well, thanks a lot. You're welcome, Ben. And you have a good day. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting. And most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.